happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge. Find the fascinating. Uncover the unexpected. happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Linda Blair to my exorcist. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Ah, hello, Peter. Is that because you vomit all over everywhere? Yes, I've got a can of pea soup for later. Well, without further ado, spooky greetings, Ryan. Yes, spookings to you. It's the special Halloween episode, Mm. and last week the spookulator gave us the boogeyman in the United Arab Emirates from 1750 to 1850. So, are you going to terrify me, Ryan? Shall I get my pants sealed on, or are you going to scare them off? Be prepared to be spooked, Peter, because in today's spooky episode of HHE, we're going monster hunting. That's right, amid the sand dunes, souks, and sci-fi skyscrapers are a group of godless ghouls that lurk in the dark, waiting to ensnare the locals. We're going to learn why it's not safe to walk alone in the desert at night, why a woman with donkey legs should not be trusted, and reveal what happens when two boogeymen fight. This Halloween, it's boogeymen all the way. Welcome to the home of the golf tiger. Welcome to the Manhattan of the Middle East. Welcome to the United Arab Emirates. So, Peter, here we are in the United Arab Emirates. I think we should split up and check out that spooky town separately and individually. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only wise option. (laughs) Anyway, the United Arab Emirates, Pete, or the Emirates, or the UAE. Uh, It's a country in Western Asia. If you're looking for it on a map, you're going to find Africa. You're going to go east and on the southeastern coast of the Persian Gulf, squished between Saudi Arabia and Iran, is the UAE. Aha! Almost all of UAE is a desert boasting some of the world's largest sand dunes. At 83,000 square kilometres, UAE is seven times smaller than a France. Oh, teeny tiny country. Yeah, pretty small. Most people think of UAE as either Dubai or Abu Dhabi, but it's actually a federation of of seven emirates. So you've got Abu Dhabi, that's the largest and the nation's capital. It covers 87% of the UAE. Oh, wow. It holds 95% of the oil, 92% of the gas. Ah, that's the one to watch. Then you've got Dubai, the futuristic, most popular city. Then you've got Fujairah, the only emirate with a coastline not on the Persian Gulf. Then you've got Ras Al Khamer, which is famous for its beaches and the largest share of rainfall. Then you've got Sharjah, the emirate famous for its arts and culture, recently made World Book Capital by UNESCO. And then Omal Khawain, the second smallest emirate with the least amount of people, and Ashman, the smallest emirate at just 260 square kilometres, 308 times smaller than France. 
I was only aware of Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I knew there were other Emirates. Mm-hmm. Not Didn't even ring a bell. Not one of those. Do you know what? Me too. And that's why the benefit of doing the show. Oh, yeah. We're here to learn. Yeah, we really are. Now, each of those seven Emirates are governed by an Emir. Now, the most famous of these is uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayan of Abu Dhabi and Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al Maktoum of Dubai. UAE has a population of 10 million people. 9 million are expatriates, of which 4.5 million are from India. Wow. So of 10 million people, 1 million are Emirati. Wow, that's amazing. It's built, obviously, on its wealth from oil and gas reserves, but focus is shifting away from energy to tourism and business instead. Considered a very safe country to travel to, it's said to be amongst the safest countries in the world. That being said, concerns have been raised about the repression of freedoms in the UAE, with some groups considering the nation to be generally substandard when it comes to human rights. Arabic is the official language, Islam the religion, and the currency is the dirham. The national symbol is the falcon, the national animal is the oryx, which is a type of deer, and it's also the first species to have been regarded as extinct, but now is back in the wild. Oh, welcome back, Oryx. Indeed. The national anthem is Ishi Baladi, meaning Long Live My Country. And it sounds something like this. Ooh, strong start. Oh, I like this one. Energy. Yeah, it's really got vim, zip. Oh, yeah, this might be one of my favourites. I love it. <laughs> you don't know what's going to come next, do you? You don't. Very upbeat. Mm. It's like it's got a. It's good to be an Emirati. <laughs> yeah, it is. is one of my favourites, I have to say. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's not very spooky, though. No, that is true. So how about some Halloween and UAE facts? I'm terrified. (laughs) (laughs) So it's working already. (laughs) Okay, so Halloween is not an Islamic holiday, so it's not observed by Muslims. But that doesn't mean Halloween is forbidden. In fact, Halloween in the UAE has ramped up in recent years, uh, mainly because of the expatriate community. You can find trick-or-treating, pumpkin carving, and costume parties all the way across each of the Emirates. For example, if you're in Dubai, you might want to head to IMG Worlds of Adventure, an indoor amusement park which is hosting a 31-day Festival of Fright event, including dark mazes, haunted alleys, and spooky dance shows. What's a spooky dance show? (laughs) I don't immediately think terror. A bit like this. Oh, that was spooky. For the audience at home, he's wobbling his arms about like he's a drunk jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) No, like a spooky jellyfish. Oh, a spooky jellyfish. That's what that was. And if you're in Sharjah, you might want to get a ticket to the Blood, Sweat and Fears wrestling event. (laughs) which is being hosted by WrestleFest DXB. And if that's not spooky enough for you, Pete... Which it is not, I'll be honest. (laughs) Spooky wrestling does not ring my bell. Well, you might want to visit some real-life haunted places. (gasps) I would. Now we're talking. Like the evil trees in Mushrif Park. (laughs) So in Mushrif Park in Jamira, there are six trees which are said to be cursed. Originally located on a roundabout on the Al Ghain Road in Dubai, the trees are said to have caused a string of mysterious deaths, including an old man who crashed his car into the trees and in his dying breath spoke of seeing an evil spirit. 
Some say the trees grew on the site of an ancient burial ground and are now rooted in evil. And that is why, for many years, the trees were fenced off to protect the public. But spooky goings-on continued until a brave tree surgeon respectfully dug up all six trees and moved them to Jamira. And are they fine now? Well, I don't know. Did the spooks go with them? Yeah, you should go and find out. I need to know. <laughs> it is possible it was just a traffic black spot. Shh. <laughs> it's not. Spooky trees. Beware the spooky trees. <laughs> spooky, spooky, spooky. Okay, and if you're in Dubai and you travel along the airport road, you might be unlucky enough to meet the ghostly Dubai bride. Ooh, mm. what happened to her? Well, on the road to the airport is a tunnel where some drivers claim that a woman dressed in an elegant Arabic wedding dress will appear to them in their back seat of the car, disappearing only when they turn to confront her. She always leaves you a one-star review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the bride doesn't cause any harm, she just stays stares sadly out of the window and disappears once you leave the tunnel. You never hear about a haunted airport, do you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, always... presumably people die at airports. You guess, wouldn't you? Mm, there's a lot of people there. Anyway, did she die from a broken heart or was she the victim of a tragic car accident on her wedding day? We don't know. Now, finally... <laughs> <laughs> this is a ghostly Uber passenger. Uh, now, finally, with it being Halloween, I thought I'd bring you a treat. Oh, I love a treat. Yeah, and what better way to celebrate our host country than treating you to some candy Yum. made from a local and traditional source of milk. Okay. <laughs> I was excited until that very last word where it kind of dropped off a little bit. I'll keep an open mind. It's the humble camel. Ooh. Camel milk chock. Oh, right. He said with some trepidation, camel chocolate. I'm excited. It's a desert cow. <laughs> the cow of the desert, as they famously call it. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Okay, so it is. It looks like chocolate. Mm. It's oh, snappable. Okay. Okay, here we go. Well, that one is tasty. Creamy. Creamy, yeah. Mm. You're getting yeah. that. Camely goodness. Hmm, not bad. If I had not brought you any treats, you'd have had the right hump. This is both spooky and appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I was thinking, if I became a zombie, would you let me eat you? Well, I wouldn't let you, but I don't think I'd blame you because you'd be a zombie, wouldn't you? You'd be an undead creature driven by an insatiable appetite for human brains. So if you were a zombie, would you eat me? No, no, I wouldn't eat. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, because if I were a zombie, an undead creature driven by an insatiable appetite for human brains, you'd be the very last person I'd try to eat. Thanks, man. You're an idiot. Do you want to know some history? I would love to know some history while I munch on my chalk. Okay. 130,000 years ago, sea levels dropped by, like, hundreds of metres. In the Middle East, this meant that the Arabian Gulf dried out, becoming like this muddy valley. But soon, the valley turned green and fertile. It was the perfect home for a small group of about 50 people who migrated out of Africa and settled there. 18,000 years ago, the sea levels started to rise again, and by 8,000 BCE, they'd risen to uh, by about 400 feet, 125 metres. And that meant that this valley was now submerged again. 
Four archaeological sites have now been found in the Emirates, which date to this period, showing that people moved gradually inland as the sea levels rose. Makes sense. Yeah, you, you would, live. wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's evidence of stone houses, long-distance trade networks, decorated pottery, domesticated animals, and the remains of the oldest boats in the world. It's estimated that tens of thousands of people lived in the area, kickstarting much of humanity's technological and societal advancements. A thousand years later, in 7000 BCE, the weather changes and things get hot and dry. Lakes dry up, the land is suddenly covered with drifting sand. Sumerian texts written around 3000 BCE describe a Machen or Magan people who were trading with civilizations in Mesopotamia, Iran, and people in the Indus Valley. In over 2000 years, the Magan are then replaced by the Hafit, Umm al-Nar, and the Wadi Suk. By 200 CE, there's a large movement of Arabic tribes which head towards the Gulf, and by the 7th century, Islam starts to spread there, following a letter sent by the Prophet Muhammad to the rulers of Oman, who then all convert. Are you saying that Islam spread by direct mail? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Muslims aren't the only people in the area, though. Uh, the remains of a monastery on Sabani Yas Island, west of Abu Dhabi, was built by Christian missionaries in 600 CE, but was eventually abandoned peacefully uh, 150 years later. Following the death of the Prophet Muhammad in the year 632 CE, various insurrections start to spring up, which are quickly ended in a violent battle that costs the lives of about 10,000 men. Meanwhile, nomadic groups clash amongst themselves and tribal groupings start to form, some of which are still represented by modern Emiratis, like the Baniyas, the Al-Bufala, and the Kawasim. And we're going to be hearing a lot more about the Kawasim later. In the 16th century, guess who arrives? Is it the Portuguese? It's the Portuguese. <laughs> they do get out there, don't they? <laughs> yeah. The Portuguese arrive followed by the English and the Dutch. By the 18th century, only the British remain. Now, we're going to be diving deeper into the history of the Emirates during 1750 to 1850, because that's the task. But for now, it's worth noting that by 1820, the British are overseeing the shape of the Emirates as we know it today. Is that an overseeing in inverted commas that Im <laughs> implies a much darker activity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> During the 19th and early 20th century, the main export is pearls. Oh, really? Yeah, fished out of the Gulf. But the First World War, the Depression in the 20s, and the creation of artificial pearls wipes out that trade. And locals are now facing extreme economic hardship. But things are about to turn around, Pete, and in a big way. In 1935, a British-led oil company, the Iraq Petroleum Company, starts drilling in Abu Dhabi. And the hunt for oil is on. By 1958, vast reserves of oil have been found and exports start to begin. Money starts rolling in and the leaders of Abu Dhabi and Dubai begin massive construction programs, building housing, schools, hospitals, roads, basically marking the very start of the modern global cities that we know today. In 1968, Britain decides to end its relationship with the region, leaving the area unprotected against invasions by Iran. Negotiations uh, result in a sort of a shaky peace agreement with Iran, but then Saudi Arabia starts to eye up large parts of Abu Dhabi. And so to protect themselves, on the 10th of January 1972, all seven of the Emirates agree to enter into a union called the United Arab Emirates. Wow. And in the 21st century, the UAE supported US-led wars in in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
In 2004, UAE's first president, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayan, died and his son was elected as the new president. The first ever national elections were held on the 16th of December 2006, and in more recent news, in February 2021, the UAE successfully sent a probe to Mars, the first country in the Arab world to do so. Wow. And in May 2022, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al-Nayan was elected as the new president of UAE following the death of his brother. They are very much keeping it in the family, though. Indeed. And that is the history. Well done. Okay, so look, Peter, have you ever been spooked walking down a dark alley at night? I mean, I live in Croydon, so yes, clearly. (laughs) Have you ever wondered what's lurking under your bed? Yeah, I've left some strange things under there, it's true. (laughs) You should probably take them down to the kitchen and wash them up. (laughs) They're evolving. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever done something wrong and felt that Something bad was coming to punish you. Oh, yes. Well, that's normal. (laughs) Hooray! (laughs) Because something is out there, Pete, Uh, and it's coming to get you. Is that reassuring? I don't think that's reassuring. (laughs) It's a creature of fear, of terror and horror. It's the boogeyman. I just send a little chill down my spine. (laughs) (laughs) Also known as the bogeyman, as you rightly pointed out, the boogie monster and the boogily woogily or whatever you want to call it. Uh, It's a generic catch-all name for any mythic creature that personifies terror. So it has no specific appearance. You know, different cultures describe it differently, but it is almost always malevolent and evil and coming to get you that's exactly right sometimes it's a man in a mask sometimes it's a monster a spirit or a ghoul think michael myers pennywise the clown slender man they're all a version of the same entity a creature which punishes bad behavior it originates from the mid 19th century and it comes from the word bogey which is a name for the devil and is used to describe anything that brings terror and dread Bogey was eventually combined with the word bear to create bug bear, an imaginary demon in the form of a creature that was part goblin, part bear, part scarecrow. (laughs) All scary. (laughs) Super scary. And it would eat small children who had misbehaved. Quite right too. Mm. And it was this bug bear which eventually morphed into the boggy man. Today, nothing is scarier to children than the boogeyman, and that fear is often taken advantage of by parents. <laughs> it does sound like a convenient ally in the war against misbehaviour. Exactly, and it, it's exactly that, disciplining your children. Don't do that, or the boogeyman will get you. Eat your greens, or the boogeyman will eat you. Don't go out at night, or the boogeyman will take you. So where's the boogeyman taking me? It sounds great. It's a cinema <laughs> yeah, or something? Yeah. <laughs> For a night on the town. Brilliant. <laughs> but the fear of the boogeyman is not just relegated to children. Adults, too, can be terrorised by the fear of an unseen threat. Evil corporations might be tracking you, Pete, browsing your search history and listening to what you say through your smartphone. Oh, they're not going to like my search history. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe aliens are among us and they want to abduct you for rectal probing. Or perhaps life on Earth is doomed because a president or prime minister you didn't vote for and whose politics you don't agree with is now in charge. Maybe you'll be cancelled by a social media mob. I feel that's coming to me reasonably soon. (laughs) Point is, the boogeyman is everywhere and it comes to serve a purpose. Called into being by sort of social infractions, the boogeyman is triggered into life and it can't be controlled. 
but it can be overcome. You have to stand up and assert yourself to face the danger and conquer it. And you have to be careful because in destroying the beast, you face the risk of becoming the boogeyman yourself. And it would be wise to remember that advice <laughs> as we talk about the history of the Emirates during 1750 to 1850. Oh, and to spice things up, I'm going to sprinkle in some Emirati folktales that each feature a horrific and terrifying boogeyman. Excellent. Starting with... No one knows the true origins of Umm Hamar, the donkey lady, but we do know... <laughs> I think I know her. <laughs> <laughs> but we do know that this creature is half woman and half donkey, and she seeks out children to eat. Just to specify which half. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be an ass. <laughs> yeah. Wearing all black and approaching with the sound of hooves, this cunning and deceitful creature waits for parents to take their afternoon nap and then approaches homes and cries out to children for help, begging for food and water. God help any children that do help, for surely they will be snatched away to her lair where she eats them slowly. And for those children who do not open the door, Umm Hamar will not leave. She bangs on the door and encourages them ever sweetly to come outside. So, if you're ever in the Emirates, when the sun is high, listen out for the sound of the donkey lady's hooves. And if you hear them, run inside as fast as you can, because the Umm Hamar is coming for you, and she's hungry. Note, in some versions of this story, she can turn into a lizard and climb inside the house. Oh no, that's all much worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. Question, is she, is she half donkey in that she has a whole donkey body, like four-legged, but don or has she just got two donkey legs? In the pictures that I've seen, it's two legs. Ah. Yeah, it's not like, a, what were they, centaur? Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was imagining. I thought she sounded quite cool, but now she's just got two wobbly donkey legs. I'm <laughs> much less pleased. Welcome to Sandy Spa. How may I help you today? I have an appointment. Oh, and your name? It's Um Hamar. Oh, yes. Have you down for a leg wax today, my darling? Yes, that's right. Excellent. Well, if you'd like to follow me and just pop up onto the table for me. Okay, no problem. Oh, oh. Is there something wrong? Well, I mean, it's just these are donkey legs, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are. The thing is, that would make this an ass wax. Oh, really? Yeah, and that's an extra 50 dirham. So we're going to begin our history from 1750 to 1850. We're going to start with what I'm going to call prologue. <laughs> Settles in for a long night. <laughs> so our story begins in central Arabia in the 17th century with a race of Arabs called the Salafi or the Wahhabi. One day, a group of their descendants decides they've had enough of sand and decides to pack up and move east to the coastal waters of the Arabian Gulf. Once there, they start hunting for pearls and are successful enough that they set up a series of trade routes to sell them. So, to distinguish themselves from the Salafé, they change their name to... Kevin. <laughs> Kawasim. Ah, right. So you said they'd be back. I did say they would be back, the Kawasim. So time moves on, and by the start of our time period in 1750, the Kawasim are now one of the major power players dominating the Gulf, alongside the Persians, the French, and the East India Company, a British company that was operating out of Bombay in India. 
So, in 1751, the Kawasim and the Persians form an alliance against the threat of these European rivals. Together they become the strongest naval power in the Gulf. Oh, wow. Now, before I'm going to go on any further, it's important to note that what I'm about to tell you is subject to some controversy. History, as we know, is often skewed with differing perspectives. The truth of what really happened is almost always subject to debate. There have been a number of instances where new evidence casts doubt on what was once considered historical fact. So what I'm going to talk about today is based on the generally accepted understanding of the history in the region, but I do need to be clear that this is hotly debated. There is a convincing argument of misrepresentation uh, presented by the historian and current Sultan of Sharjah, uh, Sultan Ibn Muhammad al-Kazimi, and he has written a collection of extensive evidence which points convincingly to a great number of exaggerations and falsifications. So while I would like to say that what follows is fact, I invite you to make up your own minds on what reality really was. Okay, I will do my own research later. So, back to the Kawazim. They formed an alliance with the Persians, and they're using this newfound power to attack the East India Company ships, travelling in to the Gulf on their way to trade. They're not as well armed as the British boats, who are usually carrying quite a few cannons. And so, generally, the Kawasim sail up close, board the ships, kill those who resisted, and sometimes those who didn't, take command of the ship and its cargo, and then either reuse them, sell them, or ransom them. British sailors learn quickly to be pretty terrified of sailing in Arabian waters, which they soon dub the Pirate Coast. Ooh! Now, as you can expect, the East India Company wasn't happy about the Kawazim threat and saw an opportunity to end it peacefully, when in 1797, Kawasim commander Sheikh Salah met with the British to ask for help attacking his enemies in Oman. So sensing an opportunity for this new way forward, the British hand over a supply of cannonballs and gunpowder from a company ship called the Viper. Now Sheikh Salah thanks the British for the ammunition and starts to sail off before turning around and firing on the Viper <laughs> with that same very same ammunition. They should have seen that coming, I feel, but okay. <laughs> they rolled the dice and they lost. <laughs> it's a bold move, right? But perhaps sensing that this was maybe a step too far, uh, the Kawasim did actually stop attacking ships, but not for long. Because at the same time the British are picking up pieces of the Viper, word of the Kawasim's power has travelled, and religious leaders in their original tribe, the Wahhabi, if you remember them, uh, they saw an opportunity to be part of what was becoming a lucrative business. So they made a deal with the Kawasim to help support their fight against their enemies, the East India Company and the country of Amman. In return, the Kawazim had to agree to return to Wahhabism and also pay the Wahhabi leaders one-fifth of any booty that they captured. It's just an investment. It's Dragon's Den. That's exactly right. And by 1804, when the Sultan of Muscat in Oman dies, the Kawasim take full advantage of their enemy's disarray by returning to attacking ships, which they did with enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they got good at it, didn't they? They sure Stick did. Stick with what you know. <laughs> yeah. In fact, within weeks of the Sultan's death, the Kawasim were now masters of the Strait of Hormuz, which is the small inlet that forms the entrance into the Arabian Gulf. So the Kawazim are now effectively gatekeepers to the Gulf, able to strike out at any vessel entering or leaving those waters. And that is exactly what they did. In 1804, the Shannon and the Trimmer, two of the company's ships, were taken. And in 1805, a fleet of 40 Kawazim ships attacks the East India Company ships, the Mornington and the Queen. The East India Company's boogeyman was back. 
and to their horror, they realised things could get worse. If the Kawazim used the lack of a ruler in Oman as an opportunity to take control there, it would be game over, as to date, the only people keeping them in check in that region were the Omanis. So, the British decided to do something about it, and they decided to appoint a new successor in Oman. So they sent a company man called Seton as an ambassador to Muscat, the capital of Oman. Seton was given a ship and told to use it in operation with the Amanis to recover any ships or cargo that had been currently taken. So Seton reaches Muscat and with the Amanis' help he makes two successful assaults which compelled them to negotiate peace. Now, the Kogawazim made an offer to return a stolen company ship and its cargo, but Seton was under orders to recover all the stolen ships and cargo, and he knew that they weren't going to buy that. So there was, there was no real deal here. So a new arrangement was made with the Kawasim leader, Sultan bin Sakar. Now, this agreement stated that the Kawasim would respect East India Company property and people from now on, and if they broke that promise, they are going to be fined 30,000 thalas, and that's worth about 300 million US dollars a day. It's a heck of a fine. Also, if they ever wanted to break the peace agreement, they would have to give three months' notice. It's got to be civilised about these things. I mean, we have to prepare if you're going to attack us. Yeah. <laughs> three months' notice, good lord. <laughs> In return, Seton allowed the Kawasim to keep all the stolen goods taken to date, and he removed all restrictions on their commercial ships being able to access ports in British India to trade goods with them. <laughs> Sultan bin Sakar agreed to the terms and left to return home, leaving Seton patting himself on the back for making friends with the boogeyman. <laughs> So let me tell you another of our traditional Emirati supernatural stories. The people who live by the coast of the Emirates, especially those who work at sea, tell tales of a frightening creature called Baba Daria, the father of the seas. A frightening and horrific creature, Baba Daria is said to be slender and dark, with mutilated lips and amputated hands. He appears in the darkness, sneaking into boats at night between prayer and morning call. Once on board, he hunts sailors. Then approaching them from behind, he grabs them and jumps overboard, dragging them down to the depths where he eats their corpse. It is said that if you hear the sound of his movement behind you, it is already too late. Others say Babadaria is a devil who lives in the sea, a creature who swims to the surface and pleads as if he is drowning. But when brought on board, he kills the sailors and destroys the ship. Some say Babadaria is just a joke, a fun initiation to horrify new sailors or a harmless way to frighten children and prevent them from swimming after eating. But if the stories are true, then you should arm yourself with prayers and words from the Holy Quran. Because when you're at sea, Babadaria waiting. I feel like having amputated hands would limit your grabbing potential. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to pick up on that. <laughs> I'm guessing like, just like all the way around. Arms like around you, I suppose, and if he's strong enough, he could get you. It stood out to me as being a, <laughs> a problem in the whole grabbing and jumping off board a boat. Anyway, super strong. Shut up. Okay, in this next chapter, I shall call this Act 1. 
<laughs> Where do you get your ideas? <laughs> so, the Kawasim leader, Sultan bin Sakar, he returns home with a new agreement. He shows this to his tribe, but the people are not happy. They say he should have consulted them first before agreeing anything with the British, and so they reject the terms, depose bin Sakar, and make his uncle the new leader. Wow, he's in our time. <laughs> yeah. The moment set on and his fleet leave to return to Bombay, the Kawasim resume their attacks. <laughs> well, it hasn't been three months. How can they do that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> uh, they scale things up and within months they have, they've captured 20 company ships this gives the Kawasim a powerful fleet over 50 ships to terrorise the East India Company then on the 23rd of May 1808 a fleet of Kawasim overwhelm the British ship Minerva and they execute most of the crew and passengers this is with the exception of one Mrs Taylor the captain's wife and her infant son, whom they take captive and hold as prisoner. Eventually, Mrs. Taylor was sold to an Arab for around $2 million in, in modern money and ransomed a year later for the equivalent of $3 million. It's good value. I can't imagine I'd fetch anything like that on the open market. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe a thala. For the company, though, this proved the last straw and a turning point in who was to become the true boogeyman. So in November 1808, the heavily armed company ship, the Tainmouth, was ordered to sail to the Gulf to, in quotes, do some training in the area. <laughs> now, I say in quotes because this was code for destroying or capturing any Kawasim vessels that it found, such that, in their own words, their chief may be made sensible of the enormity of their aggression and reduced to solicit a restoration of peace. Oh, very posh way of saying, mess him up. But Seton, the guy who negotiated the initial peace deal... Oh, he hasn't been fired yet? No, he's still around. He knows that this is unlikely to work. So he suggests that the British ally with the new ruler of Muscat in Oman, and they work together to sort of eliminate this Kawazim threat. The Bombay government agrees, and in May 1809, a Captain Wainwright and several hundred troops are sent to Muscat. Their instructions are simple, Pete. Work with the Amanis to destroy the Kawasim war fleet. Limit all military action to the sea. Only attack major ports and harbours. So, in early November 1809, an expedition set sail. The force consists of the Chiffon, the Caroline, the Fury, the Stromboli, and three other transports carrying over 1,300 troops. Together, they have a total firepower of 150 cannons. On 11th of November, they arrive at the Kawasim stronghold fort of Rus al-Khamar, and they bombard it for like three solid hours. The next day, troops are put into boats and they're rowed towards the shore. The Kawasim are in a mosque at prayer when the soldiers open fire, and despite rushing to like repel this attack, in quotes, with tumultuous shouts, they were, in Wainwright's own words, shook a great deal, the grape shot from the gunboats and the troops landing in great style, soon overpowering them. By 10 o'clock, the Kawasim are driven out of the town, with Wainwright saying, The shells and spherical case shot from two howitzers and five field pieces annoying them very much. That feels like an understatement and a half. Oh, this is annoying. I'm being shelled. <laughs> so irritating. So annoying. The town was then set on fire, and by four o'clock, 50 ships and all the buildings were destroyed. As Wainwright said, Thus, in a few hours, was this enterprising and powerful people reduced to poverty and weakness. In exchange, Wainwright had suffered the loss of just four men. 
But he wasn't finished. On 15th of November, the expedition sailed to the Persian coast and attacked Khawazim bases there. They destroyed 20 ships and suffered no loss of life. On the 26th of November, Wainwright and his fleet arrive at another Khawazim stronghold and appeal to the leaders to surrender, but that was refused. The next day, Wainwright orders his troops ashore and find that the town has been abandoned. In their absence, Wainwright's men destroy 11 ships, the town and the fort. Within 24 hours, 90 Kawasim had been killed and the leader had surrendered. Wainwright ordered his men to set sail and arrived at the port of Shinas on New Year's Eve 1809. A call was again sent for surrender and again it was rejected, so bombardment began. On the 2nd of January, Wainwright landed his troops with mortars and howitzers, and on the 3rd of January, they breached the fortress walls. By the end of that day, 400 Kawasim were dead, versus just two British soldiers. Within two months, Wainwright and his forces had turned the tables completely. The boogeyman was dead, and they had become one themselves. <laughs> So there is a man whose name is said to bring dread into your heart. His name is Garib. He was a real man from a well-known family. Described as slender, short, with no real signs of strength. His skin is pale, his clothes covered in blood, and he carries a stick which he waves menacingly in the air. Now, Garib adores violence, and he uses it to discipline people in a bloodthirsty way. He does not like lying joking or bad manners and he thinks he's helping people by punishing them, especially children. It is said that every afternoon Garib would walk in the alleys of the neighbourhood, waving his stick, and when children heard his voice, they would run. Because Garib was famous for one particular punishment, a brutal and bloody contest of pain and submission. The punishment begins in alleyways, where he blocks the path of naughty children. Then he attacks them before carrying them under his armpits like a lamb to be slaughtered. He takes them to the beach, which doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there the public are gathered to watch. Here the child is tied by a thick rope to a rock which is buried in the sand. Then Garib ties another naughty child opposite them, and he gives both of the children a bamboo stick which has had metal nails pointing out of it. Garib tells the crowd that the children have disobeyed their parents and not done their duty toward their families, and so it is down to him to rehabilitate them through durability and patience. He explains the rules of the game. The children must beat each other with these sticks, and there must be no surrender until one of them says keek, an Emirati word which indicates a great deal of humiliation and indignity. The one who says keek will then be thrown into the sea so that salt water can enter their wounds and their pain felt more intensely. And so the game would start and the children would beat each other until finally one of them would say keek and be thrown into the sea. There they would experience a pain which hurts much more than the beating itself. Now, Pete, you might think that Garib's punishment went too far. (laughs) (laughs) Might I, though? (laughs) But it was said that it worked, because those children who were punished by Garib would grow up to become the most friendly and polite people in the neighbourhood. Oh, and by the way, Garib doesn't accept rewards for his work. He does it just to help. Oh, what a lovely guy. Good evening, my friend. You got a ticket? Uh, Well, this is the thing. I, I do not... You need to have a ticket. Uh, I see. Perhaps I am on the guest list. Name? Frankenstein. Name's not here. 
Well, perhaps it's under Victor Frankenstein. No, name's not here. Doctor Frankenstein? No, name's not here. <sighs> Got a Frankenstein's monster? Yes! Yes, I created him. Oh, I'm sure you did, but uh, you haven't got a plus one. Well, but surely I can come in. This is the monster mash after all. So? Well, I am a monster. You said you were the creator, not the monster. Well, I would... In a way, am I not the real monster? You're still not on the list. Fine. I will go to the baddies' ball. It's never as much fun. Okay, this chapter I call Act Two. I thought you might. (laughs) (laughs) Right, from a military point of view, the British government's attack on the Kawasim was a complete success. And by February, the bulk of the troops had left to return back to Bombay. It was the prevalent opinion in the Gulf, founded on the result of this expedition, that the Kawasim had been rendered incapable of committing any further depredation by sea. I think that turned out to be incorrect. (laughs) Is that because we're only on chapter two? two? (laughs) I suspect, yes. I've seen Ark. (laughs) (laughs) But in practical terms, most of the Kawasim fleet had actually escaped before the attacks, or they'd been hidden in various inlets along the coast that the British bigger ships couldn't get down. And so, sure enough, within four years, Kawasim ships are Back in force in the Arabian Gulf. In 1816, they took three vessels under British colours and murdered the crew, shortly followed by a string of other brutal attacks. In fact, the Kawasim didn't just attack company ships at this point, they were also beginning to attack pretty much any other ship that sailed in the Gulf too, including an American ship in 1818, the Persia, and a French schooner, both of which were boarded and looted. They started to burn and plunder villages too, carrying off cattle and killing inhabitants. Fear of the Kawazim had returned, and the Bombay government knew they had to face this monster once again. The governor of Bombay, Sir Ewan Nepean, gathered information about the Kawazim, and in September 1818, he submitted a report to the Marquis of Hastings, the governor-general of India, and what he proposed was an immediate preparation for further military action. Hastings agreed, but suggested that they wait another year. One, to sort of build up the men needed for an effective military, and two, to give time for an alliance to be formed with Ibrahim Pasha, the son of the Ottoman Sultan, who was currently barnstorming his Egyptian soldiers through the Arabian Peninsula and was soon to battle those Wahhabis. And if they won, the Kawasim would lose support from their Wahhabi benefactors and it would weaken their position in the Gulf. Aha! According to Hastings, having Ibrahim on board was vital in turning the tides. So, a special envoy is sent to meet with Ibrahim Pasha, congratulate him on his military successes, and invite him to join forces with the British against the Kawasim. The man chosen for this mission was Captain George Forster Sadlier, and on 14th of April 1819, Sadlier set sail from Bombay to the Arabian shore, armed with a letter and a ceremonial sword as a gift for the Pasha. He reaches Oman on the 7th of May and spends 11 days there before heading off to the Persian coast, where, on the 7th of June, he learns that he would have to get a bit of a move on because Ibrahim Pasha was preparing to leave Arabia for a pilgrimage to Mecca, after which he was likely just to return back to Egypt. So, sadly, left Persia and arrives on the Arab coast on the 18th of June, and when he does finally arrive there, he finds that none of Pasha's officers know where their commander was. They've been left there long enough that they're like, I, I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, 
just taking a guess, on the 28th of June, 1819, Sadlia, accompanied by a group of Bedouins, just sets off into the Arabian desert. (laughs) (laughs) He's out there somewhere. I can sense him. (laughs) Yeah. After a difficult two-week journey, he reaches this remote town of Al-Hassa, only to find that Pasha had been there, but he'd long ago left for Daria, which is about 310 miles away, 500 kilometers. Deserty miles, presumably. the desert, yeah. (laughs) So after a 10-day rest on the 21st of July, he also leaves for Daria. The journey takes three weeks, (laughs) and when he arrives, he finds that Ibrahim has left for Hijaz, 400 miles away. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) So resting for another 10 days, he then sets off on the 24th of August, back into the desert. Weeks pass, and eventually he arrives at Ibrahim's camp. But Pasha had left two days earlier (laughs) for Medina, near the coast of the Red Sea. At which point, sadly, has kind of just had enough. So he demands that the Pasha be escorted back to meet with him. Ooh, did that go down well? A demand which was not fulfilled. (laughs) (laughs) So Sadlia packs up and he heads for Medina, back across the desert, where finally he catches up with Ibrahim. He gives him the sword and he relays the message from Governor Hastings. The Pasha seems interested in the letter, but tells Sadlia that a decision this big is going to require his father's opinion. So, with a deep sigh, Sadlia sat down and he waited. <laughs> now, Sadlia's journey through the desert was dangerous, but there are many folk tales which speak of other, more supernatural things to fear about the ocean of sand. Despicable things, Pete. Things that can lead you to your doom. I feel it would be extraordinarily easy to be led to your doom in a desert environment. <laughs> Almost every direction is doom. <laughs> okay, for example, if you're in the desert at night and you see a mysterious glowing light in the distance, you might think that it could be help. Someone travelling in a caravan with food and water. Or perhaps it could be a light from a nearby town that can offer you respite from the heat. But whatever you do, Pete, you absolutely should not attempt to follow that light. Because it might be Abu Fanus, the man with the lamp. Abu is a devilish character, a man who roams the desert alone at night and tricks travellers into losing their way. If you try to approach him, his lamp will lead you away from your chosen path, and then the light will diminish, and you'll realise too late that you are lost, alone, and left to die. And if you don't meet Abu Fanus, you will definitely want to watch out for the Headless Camel. I kind of want to see the headless camel. (laughs) So the headless camel is a slaughtered camel who has lost their head, but not their soul. The headless camel rises every evening from the dead, appearing in the darkness and intent on revenge. What's he going to do? Stump you? Kick you. Oh, he's a kicker. Oh, yeah, it's a big old kicker. Yeah. So he'll be coming for that chocolate. How does it know where you are? It just does. (laughs) And talking of dangerous camels, Pete, you must watch out for the camel with a sack. (laughs) So this is a huge wild camel and it hides behind trees. It's a huge camel (laughs) that hides behind trees. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm visualising it and I love it. It appears only during the afternoon siesta to capture people using a large sack. Now, you might think... That just means like a big old hessian sack or something, right? Yes. Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) Yeah. It has the sack in its mouth and it launches it out of its mouth 
and captures people that way. Ah. So it approaches you, vomits the sack over you, and once trapped inside its salivary sack, the victim's fear and terror is fed upon by the camel's insatiable hunger. Until finally it spits you back out and you're left alone and lost, afraid that the camel will return. I'm not finding this camels terrifying, I have to tell you. Camels are too hilarious to be terrifying. I don't know, man. I think there's something about a camel that spits out a sack and you just get trapped in it and it's like sucking out all your Munches on fears. Mm. Oh, I've got plenty, so I could feed them all day long, I assure you. Spooky, spooky, spooky. Okay, this one I call Act 3. In the end, Sadlier waited over a month till he finally heard that a reply had been received from Cairo. He then had to wait several more days to meet with the Pasha to hear what the message said. But the meeting never came. (laughs) (laughs) 20 days later, he's finally called and the Pasha reveals that he's going to write to Governor General Hastings with an answer, along with a gift of an Arab stallion and mare. Ibrahim said that a boat would be made ready to take Sadlia to Yemen, and from there he could make his journey back to Bombay. Before the meeting ends, though, Ibrahim asks Sadlia to help him address the letter to Hastings properly, wanting the Governor-General's full title and address. So Sadlia tells him to address the Governor-General as the Honourable. At this, Pasha is furious. He says that the title is worthy only of the Prophet Muhammad, and so together they settle on addressing the letter to the illustrious Governor Hastings. A few days later, Sadlia gets on the boat that's going to be bound for Yemen and he inspects the horses, which are Pasha's gift to Hastings. Unfortunately, whilst looking at these gifts, he realises that the saddles and the stirrups are pretty used and like well-worn. And so he rejects them. He demands another meeting with the Pasha like as soon as possible. And so he waits and 10 days later, he meets with the private surgeon instead. Oh, well, that totally makes sense, <laughs> yeah. obviously. So angrily, Sadlia refuses those horses the gifts, saying that they are an insult and unworthy of a man such as his beloved boss. The surgeon leaves, and a day later the horses are unloaded from the boat. Sadlier is put on the boat and told to leave town immediately. (laughs) And worse, he's informed that the Pasha has decided to cancel his reply and send a different message to the Governor-General instead, returning that gift sword that he was given to. Yeah, it was a two-word message, was it? (laughs) (laughs) Shocked Pikachu! (laughs) Sadlier has no option but to leave empty-handed. After a journey across Arabia that lasted two years, he reaches home on the 5th of May, 1820, having utterly failed in his mission man that meeting must have been awkward how did it go so well (laughs) have i told you about the headless camel but it is worth noting that history tells us that it wasn't entirely sadlia's fault apparently ibrahim pasha never had any intention of meeting with sadlia his continuous movement across the desert was intentional and he wasn't bothered by the governor general's title or the criticism of his horses it was all just a pretext in following his father's advice which was just not to trust the British. (laughs) Ah, so the letter at the end just read, it's just a prank, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as it turns out, the British weren't really bothered by Pasha's rejection, because while Sadlia was on this wild goose chase across the entire Arabian Peninsula, Hastings had already written that off and started his attack on the (laughs) Kawasi. Oh man, that poor guy, he's got back and gone, not only was it a complete failure, but it was a waste of time anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. <laughs>
So, the most famous boogeyman in the Emirates isn't actually a man. And it's not a camel. Umad <laughs> uh, Weiss is a beautiful woman. I love a beautiful woman. Both elegant, graceful, slim, attractive. Just my type. With long black hair. Oh, sign me up. She wears golden clothing and a perfume so strong it can be smelt from a mile away. Or in my case, at all. <laughs> She also has cat's eyes. Oh, nice. I like that. I'm not put off yet. (laughs) (laughs) And her hands are replaced with curved blades. Mm. Deal breaker? I don't know. I mean, tell me more about her. Let me get to know her a bit first. I'm going to write her off. She can appear anywhere to anyone. And when she does, she will seduce them. And then she will kill them. One man was riding a donkey when he saw a beautiful girl on the road near a mountain. The girl approached him timidly, lifted her veil, and with a grin called out to the man in a lovely voice, suggesting that he follow her. The man was tempted. (laughs) But he then thought to himself, wait, who is this woman? How did she come to this remote place? And so he refuses. And immediately, Omad Weiss reveals her true identity. An old hag whose looks were so scary that the man could not stand to look at her. He turned his face and began nervously reciting passages from the Holy Quran. And when he looked again, she had disappeared. The man knew that if he had surrendered to immorality, he would surely have surrendered to death. I'm still considering it. Look, she's useful around the house. Oh, could you chop the vegetables, love? No problem. <laughs> In the garden? Great. I think she's I think she's got a lot going for her. That grass is getting really long. Do not want to give her a high five, though. That's an easy mistake to make. Welcome to Sandy Spa. How may I help you today? I have an appointment. And your name? Um, advice. Ah, yes. I've got you down for a manicure today. That is correct. Oh, is there some kind of problem? Well, I mean, it's just, well, these are sickles, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are. I mean, then you're going to need our grind, sharpen and buff service. And that is? 50 dirhams extra. Okay, we move on to our next act. Can I speculate as to the name of this segment? Please. Is it Act 4? Yeah, it is, yeah. (laughs) So, while Sadlia is traipsing across the Arabian desert... (laughs) Waving his letter. Come back! (laughs) The Bombay government has given up on the idea of an Egyptian-British alliance, and they've decided instead to rely solely on the Amanis. And the Muscat contribution was pretty generous. 70 boats with 800 sailors and 4,000 soldiers for the land. In Bombay, Major General Sir William Grant Keir is selected to command a fleet of warships, cruisers and transport ships carrying a total of 212 cannons and 3,000 men. On the 27th of October 1819, Keir is given instructions to proceed to the Kawasim fortress of Rus al-Khamer, and he's told to seize it, destroy any ships, and this time leave a permanent British garrison there. Ah. After that, he's ordered to continue on and do the same to all other ports which support the Kawasim. The British Amani forces are ready to battle their demons. In the Kawasim corner, things weren't looking great. As predicted by Hastings, Ibrahim Pasha's attacks on the Wahhabis had resulted in them providing much less support to the Kawasim. And with word of this impending British attack, some Kawasim sultans took the early opportunity to switch sides, making alliances with the Amanis. This left Hassan ibn Rahama, 
the ruler of Ras al-Khaimah with a bit of a problem as he was left facing the British Amani forces pretty much alone. But Ras al-Khaimah was the most strongly fortified town on the entire Gulf Coast. It was three or four miles in length and is less than a mile wide. It had the open sea on one side and was protected by a long sandbank which kept large warships from getting too close. Extra fortifications had been built since the last attack in 1809, and now the walls were 15 feet wide, with defensive towers mounted with cannons taken from the captured ships. Inside the walls was a massive building made of stone called the Citadel, and it was widely considered the strongest building on the Gulf. Oh, and 7,000 armed and deadly men were at his disposal. But before he could tackle Ras al-Khaimah, General Kier was having trouble long before he arrived. His entire fleet were facing a battle with disease. Malaria, cholera, scurvy, they were all taking their toll on a huge number of casualties. So many, in fact, that Kia had to employ several hospital ships just to follow along behind them to treat his men as they were going. But despite issues with disease and also low supplies of fresh food and water for all those people, the British Omani forces finally arrive at Ras al-Khaimah on the 28th of November, 1819. So they encircle the area and they prevent anyone from getting in or out. At five o'clock in the morning on the 3rd of December, which feels a little unfair. Come on, guys. Five in the morning. Reasonable. I haven't even had my egg yet. (laughs) Vast numbers of boats loaded with troops move in a long line towards the beach. There's little resistance when they land, mainly because the Kawasim hadn't expected such a huge number of troops to disembark at the same time. And by the evening, British and Omani stores and equipment are all brought ashore, including howitzers and six-pounder guns. The Kawasim withdraw inside and they close the gates. By nightfall, the British forces have advanced to within 25 yards of the citadel. The next day, 4th of December, shelling commenced, from land and from sea. And it lasted all day, continuously. Oh dear. On the 5th of December, the shelling became more intense, but the citadel held up. On the 6th of December, shelling continued yet again, but some cracks started to appear. So, during the night, a suicide squad, led by the brother of Hassan ibn Rahama, left the citadel and attacked and took the British position. A fierce battle ensues, during which at least 90 Kawasim are killed, including Ibn Rahama's brother, and the British regain control. Four days of continual artillery shelling, without real effect, was enough for General Keir, so he sent the larger cannons from his ships on shore, and on the 8th of December they went into action and had an immediate effect. The power of those cannons this close to the fortress's walls was so damaging that by that evening the walls had been breached. That night, Kia contacts Ibn Rahama to discuss his surrender, but no agreement could be reached. So, the 9th of December, firing resumed, and a breach was made into the citadel. A group of British sailors rush in and find the place empty. No way! He snuck off in the night! And so they hoist the British flag without a fight. Ibn Rahama had used the cover of night to retreat into the hills, but now, faced with the loss of the fortress and 80 of his ships, there's no choice but to surrender. Hassan ibn Rahama is placed in confinement while the citadel and all remaining fortifications are destroyed. In total, 400 Kawasim were killed at Ras al-Khaimah. The British lost just four. Wow. So, different from the rest of the creatures which we've mentioned before, Athayun 
is one with whom people truly feel real fright. Some say he's real, some say it's the result of a bad dream, and others consider him to be a satanic demon. Whatever he is, we know that Athayun is a creature who will visit you during the night, and he will sit on your chest and stretch out your tongue. He will alter your dreams in a way that causes the most extreme anxiety and horror. And some say he only comes to bad people, but it's best to sleep with one eye open, because Athayun is waiting to leap on your body. I think I know him. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's visited more than once, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we've all experienced Athayun at some point. <laughs> Okay, I call this epilogue. Ooh. So, the fall of Rosalheimer was not the end of General Kier's expedition to the Gulf. Much like the last expedition, he was under strict orders to destroy the Kawasim entirely. And so, over the next month, he travels around the Arab coast, stopping at every Kawasim town and port that he can find. He captures fortresses, he takes prisoners, he reclaims ships, and all stolen cargo that he can find. Now, despite this success... Kier realised that it would be advantageous, let's say, to show willing to his enemy, and so he releases the captured Kawasim leaders, making them promise that they wouldn't repeat their previous behaviour. <laughs> now, it's said that this decision by Kier was instrumental in the remaining Kawasim leaders choosing peace rather than continuing to fight. Now, peace treaties were signed, and each stronghold, gun and vessel was handed over without violence. And... Well, that was that. The operation was over, and it all took less than one month. The East India Company wanted to encourage a spirit of renewed cooperation with their ex-boogeymen, and so a decision was reached to recognise their continued independence and rights to commercial shipping too, with the simple caveat that Britain would continue to monitor their politics and their military for what would become 150 years of British influence. Wow, that's a serious lingering establishment. It sure is, and it's still felt. <laughs> now, before we finish, I have two final Emirati boogeyman stories to tell you, Pete. I'm ready. Now, along the coast, south of Ras al is a town called Al Jazeera Al Hamra. In 1820, it was home to about 200 people. Now, they kept sheep and cattle, and they had a small fleet of fishing boats which they would cruise the waters fishing for pearls. But one night, the entire village upped and left, leaving the place abandoned. Now, no one knows for sure why the people left, but some say that they were forced to flee because the town was invaded by an evil spirit. In fact, it's said that if you stay overnight, there is a chance you will encounter the spirit yourself and not make it through the night. Today, locals from the surrounding area refuse to visit the town, afraid of the creature that has made it its home. Oh man, next year broadcast from the ghost village. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, can you imagine? Unless we actually get, like, attacked. That would be less great. Yeah, but it'd be recorded, so... I would hope, I've hoped for a visit from the Headless Camel before I get the (laughs) the boogeyman (laughs) from the ghost village. Right, and my last story, Pete, and my personal favourite. One evening, around midnight, a woman was walking through her neighbourhood, when suddenly she felt the presence of a man walking behind her. 
That does happen. She turned to face the man, and to her horror, Pete, he transformed into a boat. (laughs) (laughs) I did not see that coming. I must admit, that was a surprise to me. Well, hold on. (laughs) Because he transforms into a boat with little sails and limbs. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So this is the boat with limbs. And the woman, she runs, right? As you would if you saw a man turning into a boat with little would, would you though I'd get on board see where it <laughs> takes me <laughs> but the boatman pursues her trying to lasso her with a rope that's is, right is it a boatman or a man boat <laughs> it's like a wear boatman <laughs> wear boatman <laughs> anyway so he has a rope which he uses like well, he a lasso he's a boat <laughs> yeah but it's like a cowboy boat uh-huh. wear man uh, anyway right, so, <laughs> so he, he's trying to catch her with, with the rope Eventually, she reaches her house, and she yells for her husband to help. And as luck would have it, Pete, her husband was strong and tough. And when he saw that the boatman was trying to lasso his wife, he grabs the rope, and he pulls on it, yanking it out of the boatman's grasp. Aha! Now, seeing how strong the husband was, Katafrafe turns and runs away. But the story does not end there, Pete. Katafrafe could not live without his rope. Right? Because how else was he going to capture women? I know. I mean, (laughs) that's a big part of his lifestyle. Exactly. So the next day, (laughs) he goes back to the house. (laughs) You knock on the door. Tell me he he knocks knocks on the door. door. (laughs) And he begs for the rope back. Can I have my my rope back, please? (laughs) So. So the husband demands that he never comes back, else he's going to kill him, right? That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) And so he reluctantly gives him the rope back, and Catafrafe leaves, and he's never seen again in the neighbourhood. Now, no one knows where he went, Pete, but if you're walking the streets alone late at night, check behind you, because the boat with limbs might be right there. Spooky, spooky, spooky! Welcome to Sandy Spa. How may I help you today? I have an appointment. And your name? Mr. Katafrafe. Ah, yes. And I've got you down for a massage. That's right, Jess. Okay. Well, if you'd just like to follow me and just pop up onto the table and lower your sails. Oh. Is there a problem? You've got your barnacles showing, love. Well, I was hoping you might scrape them for me. Oh, my goodness. I can pay 50 dirhams extra. Get out, you pervert. Okay, just finally, some thanks and recommendations for further reading. Thanks to Sultan Muhammad al-Qasimi for his book, The Myth of Arab Piracy in the Gulf. Mubarak al-Atobi for his thesis on the Kawazim and British control on the Arabian Gulf. Dr. Abdulaziz al-Musalam for his Encyclopedia of Superstitious Creatures in the Emirati Heritage. And Reddit users, Mohammed Sirius underscore complaint underscore 46, <laughs> for his in- 
enormous contribution. He's been fantastic help. And also Reddit user Evis, <laughs> three I's, a V, three I's and an S, uh, for sending me an English translation copy of an out-of-print book on superstitious creatures of the Emirates. I couldn't find it and I would not have had a lot of those stories without him. So thank you to everybody who has contributed. Well, thanks, guys. You did a great job. And uh, Ryan has done you justice there, I think, because I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was uh, a mix of history and ghoulishness and uh, a little bit of hilarity in the form of the ship that comes back and asks for his rope back, which uh, I particularly enjoyed, as you might imagine. (laughs) So, yes, Ryan, that was marvellous. I thoroughly enjoyed it and was terrified throughout paralyzed stripped to my seat with fear and dismay mm-hmm. uh, which is what you were after i think but the time is over mm-hmm. and we move on to the future things yeah we should move on quick before the boogeyman gets here he's on his way he's out to get you as we know mm-hmm. so shall we wheel out the desolator I, i've done it already look oh right nice shiny polished i was hiding it behind this tree <laughs> <laughs> like the giant camel <laughs> hides behind a palm tree yeah uh, okay well shall we uh i'll do it we... i'll switch it on there we go. Gear okay. it up. Nice. Yeah. All right. And uh, right, it's your turn, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. Okay, so here we go. So your place is... Bhutan. Bhutan. Mm. And your time is... 400 to 500 CE. Oh, that's disappointing. That's very early days. I was hoping for more recently than that, but okay, we'll see what we find. Yeah. And your topic is... Face the music. Hmm. That's good. both a metaphor and you can just nick the music bit, can't you? So hopefully yeah. that give, that brings me something. Come on, there's music in Bhutan in 400 CE, right? Absolutely riddled with the stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's all they did. <laughs> just musicians, composers. Well, I look forward to finding out. Bhutan, here we come. There you go. So, yes, episode 62 will be Face the Music in Bhutan during 400 to 500 CE. I'm on it. <laughs> And that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hi, reach out to us through the website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yep, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future spooky show. If you're a social media person on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get a spooky alert every time we post one of our spooky one-minute, spooky animated, spooky hhe bites. I've heard they're spooky. <laughs> yeah. We will be back again soon, obviously, with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to Ryan. Thank you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey Pete! Why are you wearing all the disco gear? Well, I'm I'm the boogeyman! <laughs> oh that's a good one. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? The boogeyman, that's a that's a good joke. Joke? Wait, is that really what you think the boogeyman is? Well yeah, it's like the song says, he he likes to boogie all night all night long. Wait, 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 wait. Do you mean to tell me you researched the entire episode and you still don't really know what the boogeyman is? Well yeah. Well, what is it then if you're so smart? Well, Ryan, he's supposed to be horrific. The Boogeyman is a creature of nightmares from your darkest imaginings. He's the most terrifying thing to come out of your head. Oh, oh, right. 
Oh, well, that's easy. Okay, give me a sec. Ah, there. Look at that. Oh, my God. Did, did that come out of your nose? Yeah. It's my booger, man. That is horrific. <laughs> Nailed it. You all right, Ryan? Yeah, I just stubbed my toe. <laughs>